since 1971. WIF Detroit. It's going to be a month from now, the Rod Stewart Small Faces concert. Already it's sold out. What we'll do is uh, for the next month, we'll give away 10 pair a week for three weeks and then 20 pair the last week before the concert. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. JJ and the morning crew. Ken Calvin. Arthur Penhallow. Steve Costan. And Karen Savelli. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. For the Riff Rockers out of Roush Racing in Livonia. That, of course, White Zombie, Nightcrawlers, Leonard Kiss 65. They'll be in concert with Pantera. August 10th out of the Palace of Warren Hills. Check that out. Also in there, New Rock from Sponge and some Tedley. Ooh, nothing but good stuff here on Detroit's Home of It All. 101 WRIF. Hey, the Riff. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. In Detroit Radio, there's Riff, and then there's everyone else. Hey, baby. Uh, welcome to the podcast, The History of WRIF. I am Mike Staff, and I'm so happy to be doing this podcast. I spent 14 years on The Riff from 1992 to 2006, and uh, joining the conversation today is one of the most recognizable names oh, and voices in all of Detroit rock radio history, Karen Savelli. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, we were just talking like 40, almost 45 years yeah, in Detroit radio. Almost, almost made it. <laughs> that is incredible. Does it blow your mind when you think about that? Yeah, it's where did the time go? Yeah. Um, it A blink blink of the eye. I know. So do, you grew up in the Detroit area? Yes. Where did you I, grow up? I uh, was born in Detroit. There was a hospital called, I can't remember, Women's Hospital or something down around near Tiger Stadium, actually. Uh, my family lived in Detroit. Then we moved to Farmington and... We moved to West Bloomfield when I was going into high school. It was like no man's land then. And I graduated from West Bloomfield, uh, graduated from Wayne State. I've kind of like never left. Yeah. So what is your degree in from Wayne State? Uh, liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> did you but I did take radio. You did. TV, film. I took all of this speech, everything. When did you know you wanted to be in radio? Um, probably in my... Say my sophomore year there of college. Yes. And was yeah, there a Wayne. Wayne State radio station? Yes, W A Y N, which I was very active in. You were. Yeah, there were about four women who worked there and about thirty guys. Right. Uh, and I also worked at W D E T. Mm. Uh, I did the news there. When you were going to college. Yep. Wow, cool. I even worked at W four when I was going to college. Wow, excellent. I wasn't done yet, and it was interesting the way I got my job. Uh, one of the women that worked at WAYN with me, um, her, she was about to get married. Her husband was a disc jockey in Cleveland, and there was their friend, Ira Lipson, um, Ira J. Cook, he called himself on the air, had just started up a new radio station, W4, mm. as a rock station. He needed a woman for weekends, so Jan, my friend, went and did weekends. But she was getting married to Chuck, who lived in Cleveland. And Jan said, take a tape over to Ira, because I'm going to be leaving the job, and they need a woman to do weekends. Back then, a chick. <laughs> and I went in, the tape was horrible. But I got the job, and as soon as the day she got married was my first day on the air. Wow. So, so yeah. your first job in commercial radio was at W4. At W4, yep. Wow. What year was that? 72. That was the year W4 came on. 
Um, it, I'm not sure if W4 came on in 71 or 72, but I started in 72. As a, as a part-time weekender. Yes. And it was kind of rare, though, for women to be a DJ. Most of the time, women were like newscasters and things like that, right? Right, right. I mean, there were a couple of them that were influential to me. Uh, Ann Christ over at ABX, Barbara Holiday at Riff. Mm. Um, but... I don't know. It was just it, it was like the times, you know. It was the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, the country was in turmoil, mm-hmm. and the music scene here in Detroit was incredible. It was, and that's mostly why I got into it. But I found out in college that I loved speech classes. Um, I loved all my classes, except for the ones that I didn't have like language and stuff like that, foreign language. Oh, you're right. <laughs> so um, were, did you ever get full-time at W4 then? Uh, yeah, I started there in December of 72, and the following March, I can't remember who left, but somebody left, and they offered me full-time. So I was going to school full-time. I was ready to graduate, mm. and I was working full-time, That's the awesome. 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift. Nice. So I took a lot of Mm no-dos, and uh, I managed to graduate and keep the job for a while. That's great. And then how long were you at W4? Uh, Four years, and then I went to WABX for three, and then I went to Riff in 1979, and I was there until 88. Mm -hmm. Now, what led from W4 to WABX? Back then... It was funny. It was pretty much you. If you wanted to switch jobs or whatever, you just kind of called the program director and you said, "You know what? I'd really like to work at your radio station or something like that." And so I decided. I don't know. Things weren't going that great at uh, W four, and I decided to make a switch over to ABX. Now, it was a- very casual back then. Yeah, it sounds like it. And now a- ABX was like the original rock station in Detroit. It was very much underground, right? Yes, I used to listen to that when I was in high school. Right. And then so, but by that time when W4 was a direct competitor, didn't ABX get a little bit more mainstream? Sure did, yeah. And a little bit more programmed? And it was more mainstream when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> who, who did you work with at ABX? Oh, boy. Uh, John O'Leary. Mm-hmm. Um, ABX was Dennis Frawley. Oh, man, I've worked with so many people. Jim Sote, Jerry Lubin. Um, our program director was Bob Birch. Al Wilson was our general manager. Now, was Costan at ABX when you were at ABX? That was after you, yeah. And then uh, Calvert? Yeah, Ken was there when I was there. It, it it was so interchangeable. Like I said, it was so casual. Right. That you never knew. Right, right. And and tell me about music at the time. What was going on when you're at ABX musically? It was interesting because it was kind of like when the transition in music was happening. I mean, it that kind of happened when I was at W four, but like the Foreigners, the Boston, the Van Halen. Um, Genesis and its more mainstream mm. form. These were the bands that were becoming the popular bands. Um, Heart, REO Speedwagon, mm-hmm. kind of the like you said, the more mainstream yeah. groups. And the music scene in Detroit 
uh, oh, in the early awesome. 70s. I mean, when you have the MC5 kind of leading the way, right? Yeah. And yeah. then the Rationales and, I mean, what other bands? And then those? came the Romantics. The Romantics. That was a lot huge. of fun. The Rockets. Mm-hmm. We had a great time with them. Yeah, and Seeger. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you can't forget about Bob. Of course. And then what led to you going to Riff? I know Tom Bender had tried to hire me there, but he wanted to offer me the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift. I was working the 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift at ABX, and mm. I said no. Which and is the, one of the best shifts in radio. It's yeah. such a good shift. And I don't know how many, it was maybe six months to a year later, he called me again, and they said, look, we're going to bring in Calvert, we're going to bring in JJ in the morning crew, and we want you, and you can have 6 to 10. I said, I'm Done. there. <laughs> yeah. Now, was, uh, was Fred Jacobs the PD and Tom was the general manager? No, Tom was the PD he at was. that okay. time. Yes. Fred came a little bit later. Got it. Uh, but yeah, Tom was there. Jay Hoker was the general manager. And I always remember, you know, our uh, place was near Broadcast House at 10 Mile and Northwestern. And just before I quit at ABX, uh, Jay Hoker sat me down in the Howard Johnson's across Northwestern Highway there. And he said, I'll give you $1,000 if you go in there and you tell them you're quitting today. <laughs> I said, Okay. <laughs> thousand bucks. Heck yeah, back then. Yeah, heck oh yeah. my gosh. Wow. And that was the beginning of what I like to say was the first real all-star riff lineup with JJ in the morning, crew in the morning, Calvert in middays, Arthur, Arthur in the afternoons, and then you at night. Like That's hard to beat. That was a lot of fun. And Carl Coffey was... And Carl was doing 10 to 2? Yeah. And you remember who was doing overnight? No. There was, a, there was like a rotating. <laughs> there were different yeah, people. Yeah, a lot yeah. of different people. That's yeah. awesome. Um, Tom, so talk about Tom and, Fre- and Fred and how they kind of work together to create that kind of that new riff with that all-star lineup and a lot of research. And it was just a, kind of a new era of radio, wasn't it? Yeah. Rock radio? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. <laughs> they had the vision. They yeah. definitely had the vision. Tom Bender has such vision. He is... Well, I, I, he's re, he and uh, Dick Kernan are responsible for my whole career. Mm. It's the way I feel. Wow. So tell me about Kernan. <laughs> now, Dick Kernan, for our listeners, he, Dick uh, was actually the first uh, program director of the Riff. Yes. And he has spent the last 40-plus years at Spex Howard as the yes. vice president of Spex Howard. Yes. Um, he knows more about radio than any human on earth, I think. That's true. Great guy. Um, like I said, I, he and Tom... I am forever grateful to yeah. them for believing in me. I really am. Well, and they have high character, which um, yes. not everyone in radio does, let's say. <laughs> so when they said something, you can count on it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Coming up. When I got to Riff, we were still in the trailers, mm-hmm. and that was the pits. <laughs> and uh, people would break into the Channel 7 broadcast house grounds, and... There was no air conditioning, so you'd have to open the window in the studio, and people would be sticking their heads in there while you're on the air. The history of WRIF. Now. The Slave Market presents a new record in the tape section called Wax and Tracks. Some of the newest and best-selling albums out today by Cat Stevens, John Lennon, Rod Stewart, Humble Pie, Jeff Beck, Van Morrison, and many others are available at Wax and Tracks. 
Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. Thank you, Detroit. Thank you, sir. Coolness aside, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you, Rudy. Say it! Say it! Uh, thank you and stuff. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Karen Savelli. So let's talk about when you first get to Riff, and we got this all-star lineup that's going on, and you got the vision and the research behind it. Um, the other thing that Riff was doing at the time, which was kind of new to rock radio, was the marketing push behind it. And, yes. uh, and Riff got the Remarkable Mouth commercial. That was awesome. Unfortunately, a lot of people thought that was me. Mm-hmm. And then when they met me, oh, no. <laughs> That's a tough you. standard right there. <laughs> Could you feel the momentum building, though? Oh, it was awesome. It was just great. It was. It was on top of the world. It was really, really fun. And musically, what was Riff doing that ABX and W4 wasn't doing at the time? Do you remember? It, they were all pretty much the same, I think. Um, it's just that we had, like you said, the marketing. The other thing that they had when we all got there, uh, they made this Riff music guide, this beautiful magazine which mm. i wish i knew where mine was i would have brought it but it had all the jocks it had all our pictures with rock stars wow. it had pictures of the venues around town it had uh floor plans of the venues mm. um great idea it was really i'm surprised you haven't seen one i haven't whoa well i gotta find one yeah so that was that a like a monthly magazine or it was no, just like it was a, just a one time and it was beautiful it was like life magazine yeah that, that people would hang on to because if they're yes, going to the concert and people there have. i mean people have given me, them to me all these years later wow that's awesome and that was again that was just so different yep at the time yeah every radio station had their call letters on a bumper sticker but riff took it to the next level well but the interesting thing was that when i got to riff we were still in the trailers mm-hmm. and that was the pits <laughs> if you walked funny on the floor the record would skip uh, because so, we played records at the right night. of course um and uh people would break into the channel seven broadcast house grounds and there was no air conditioning, so you'd have to open the window in the studio, and people would be sticking their heads in there while you're on the air. <laughs> that is so funny. And then Tom, once again, with his vision, um, had the plan for the Ultimate Studios, which the building was gorgeous. So you went from the trailer into the into best studios in Detroit. place, yeah. <laughs> but we all still look the same. Right. <laughs> Channel 7 people used to come over and kind of get a kick out of how the, the hippies. <laughs> That's what you were considered at the time. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> uh, Channel 7 or ABC TV radio owned the riff at yes, the time. Yes, which know? was great. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of power behind it. And I know with the Remarkable Mouth commercial, um, it was easy for Channel 7 in Detroit to be playing that commercial nonstop. And it, it was nonstop stop wasn't it it's a great commercial it is a great commercial it's been relived a couple of times since of course mm-hmm. karen newman a little bit more right recently. that was really good too mm-hmm. talk about being a woman in radio back in the especially in the 70s and 80s like that where there's usually not a lot of women but you were you were more than a trendsetter i mean you you Thank hit you. the you, you were super influential and was it just something wow. that happened or was it calculated it happened. It just happened. Yeah. Um, I went to college with the ambition to be a teacher. Mm. And in order to get into the School of Education at Wayne State, you had to take speech class. 
I was pretty active in journalism in high school, um, and I'd thought of doing something like that. But I wanted to be a teacher, and I was afraid to take a speech class, so I took it first quarter freshman at Wayne State, and I loved it. I I loved it. Um, So I started taking more and more speech classes as a freshman and a sophomore, and... um, you know, sitting around in the union or something, some friends of mine said, they're starting a new class. It's called Intro to Radio, TV, and Film. Mm. You should do it because you've taken every speech class. So I did, and that led me to the radio production class um, and the TV production and this and that. And my radio production class professor was on the radio in Detroit. His name was Dan Logan. Mm. Actually, I'm his son uh, is still in the area. He's in a band, and mm. I you know, stay in Facebook touch with him. But Dan Logan was the biggest influence in college for me because he was really tough and really fair. Mm. He, taught, he said it like it was. And he did not say, oh, we got this chick in the class, and we're not going to... I'm not going to take her seriously. He did. Were you one of the only chicks in the class? Yeah. Wow, interesting. Oh, yeah. The women, I don't know. But I really, I just loved it, and I loved music, Mm -hmm. and it kind of fit together. Well, and um, so you're going to this male-dominated industry, but did you always feel like one of the guys? Like, were were you always feeling comfortable? Yes. Yeah, I did. And you always had everyone's respect. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. None of the Me Too thing for me. I mean, nothing. (laughs) Well, it was a a way different time. Yeah. And it was just fun. It was probably just fun to hang out with everyone. It was great, and it was different because we did hang out. Um, John O'Leary, he has a lot of old photographs. And my parents lived over on Lake Michigan uh, near Muskegon for Mm. about 30 years. And... Before they moved there permanently, um, I used to go up there on weekends with friends, and John posted some things on Facebook of pictures of all of us at their house. Mm. And he wrote, this is when radio was cool, when we actually liked each other and used to (laughs) hang out together. And we did. Yeah. Yeah, I see all those pictures. I mean, on everyone's Facebook, everyone has them. (laughs) So talk about your relationship with Bob Seger. When was the first time you met Bob? Oh, brother, that was ages ago. Um, Really, really got into it when he did the uh, live bullet. Mm. Because Bob's always wanted to make sure that all the disc jockeys were recognized. And I remember we got to stand on the stage Mm. for that concert. Wow, Um, at Kobo. Yeah, that was... I don't know. He's just always been great. I mean, I've run into him at Kroger and stuff. And mm. He gives me a hug. You know, it's like, hey, how you doing? That's funny. But he still recognizes DJs that way. Oh, at least absolutely. you guys. They just named a road after him. And again, yeah. he recognized you guys. Yeah, he wanted us out there, which was really cool. And Bob, so Bob was a national figure at that point. I mean, when Live Bullet came out, he was... He was getting there. He was getting there. Mm-hmm. But he still did a lot of shows in Detroit, so you'd see him a lot in Detroit. Well, those were in the earlier days. Mm. Um, I didn't really know him then. I mean, I probably did see him a couple times at some of the clubs. There were so mm. many clubs around town, yeah. and I wasn't in radio. But from like the beginning of being in radio, um, 
we knew him because he was our local guy yeah. that we wanted to do good. Everyone was rooting for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was such a different, well, it was such a different world, but such a different industry, the music industry at, at the time. It seems to me like it was probably easier to make connections and friends with bands that would come through back then. Right. Because you had a little bit more access to them. Absolutely. Um, the record promoters... They wanted to get these. I mean, these bands, Queen, um, you know, Foreigner, Boston, Kiss, everybody. Um, they weren't popular then, and the promoters wanted them, you know, us to play their records. So they really worked it. Um, yeah. So then you, they would come through the radio station, and you guys they would, would bring them into the radio station for interviews and things like that. Yeah. Now, who are some of your favorite interviews back then? Oh, brother. I don't know. I don't remember. And I think an easier question to ask you would be, is there anyone that you didn't interview that you would have liked to? <laughs> no, but you know what? I think some of the nicest people, most of the people were very nice. Um, Journey. The, mm. guy, the guys in Journey were just wonderful. They were, they were just like, I mean... We had softball games with them and everything. They were just like, I hate to say, normal people. But right. they, it was like they're not stars or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I did get to have dinner with Freddie Mercury and the rest really? of Queen. I won't say that I had deep conversation with him or anything because there were a lot of people there. But yeah. we went to Mario's in Detroit. I remember that. That wow. was a long time ago. Great yeah. memory. So when you're watching the Queen movie, did it? Oh, that was awesome. Yeah, it was, wasn't good it? Good movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. really good job. So um, what is it about Detroit music fans that make them so special? Uh, loyalty. Mm. Um I think Detroit in general. I think that's why disc jockeys and TV personalities and musicians, I think Detroit is very loyal, and it's like a huge, small town. It is, too. It's, I don't know, it's just, you feel comfortable no matter where you are. Mm Mm-hmm. Usually. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But that's the whole thing, and I think that was... You know, the success of us jocks um, and, you know, sports figures and things. Not that we're on a par with sports figures, but I think that the people of Detroit are very loyal and good people. Basically just good people. Well, I think the fact that uh, Ford Field will still sell out shows that Detroiters are loyal. I want to see Tom Brady. Right, yeah, exactly. Tom Wright um, was the manager of the Grandy Ballroom, and he's also um, good friends with Pete Townsend, and he was the the official photographer for The Who. And he had a really interesting observation about Detroit. He said um, Detroit's heartbeat was on an eight-hour shift. And it just kind of thumped that way, and the people would be used to working really hard and then playing really, really hard. Yeah. And he thought that kind of transcended into yeah. that type of spirit in arenas and everywhere That's a good else. There was going to be yeah. music. Yeah. Just kind of the way that we're raised in Detroit. You know? Well, I know Roger Daltrey has a soft spot for Detroit. Yeah, for sure. Have you had experiences with the Who then? Um. Yeah. Gee, I think so. <laughs> It's funny how there's so many and they blend together. Yeah. Um, 
I did interview Roger Daltrey. He was great. Cool guy. Mm. Um, gee. I'm trying to think. I know that we all went to the Who concert when they played the Silverdome. In 82. Yeah. 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 Coming up. Um, and that was when the Dick the Bruiser Band, they had an album out. Right. We used to have concerts uh, once a week down in Hart Plaza. They were huge. I mean, you know, you had all the people from all the businesses and offices coming to watch. And, yeah, we had, you know, we had great bands like The Look, Better Sweet Alley, you know, Toby Red, all these great local bands. Right. And, yes, they packed the house. Get up to join It's a New Day in the Motor City with JJ and the Morning Crew on the Riff. You woken up for good, but you wanna stay in bed. Now you're staring at the ceiling, there's a pounding in your head. But you gotta go to work and collect your day's pay. So you hurry through your job, cause at night you'd like to play. History of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. The history of WRIF. Join me, Steve Costa, and this Friday night as the Riff Rocks at the Hayloft West. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, November 15th, 16th, and 17th, 8 p.m. at the East Town, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And, yes. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Karen Savelli. So let's talk about some of the DJs on Riff. Let's talk about JJ and the Morning Crew. What do you suppose it was about JJ and the Morning Crew that resonated so much with the Detroit rock radio listeners? I guess, I, I think that they were relatable. I think George, um, or the Morning Crew. Right. He's he's from the East Side. He's a relatable guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Jim's a good counterpart to that. Yeah, a good he is. Contrast. Yeah, the balance. I love I love him. I, I got to see him at that at the Bob Seger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they blended into the community. Um, the things that, that were funny about the community were they were able to express. Mm-hmm. I. I don't know. They they just seemed, but they were funny. I mean, they were good. They were laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something when you're from Detroit, you can make jokes about Detroit that someone who's not from Detroit better Correct. not come here and do that. Right. <laughs> and I think that those guys took advantage of those liberties a little bit. Yeah. How about Calvert? Calvert, you talk about I someone who's who's a um, relatable guy. I don't know if there's another DJ that relates. Well, it's funny. Can. When I was working at W4, um, I had been there a few months, and I always remember this guy walking in. He had a hat on. He had really hair, you know, down to his shoulders. And he comes walking in, and he had this great voice, and he wanted a job, and it was Ken. <laughs> And he got the job, but um, man, I have some great pictures of those early W four days. Uh, but I just thought his voice was 
wonderful. He reminded me of a jock uh, who had been at Riff, Paul Greiner. Mm. Um, they sounded a lot alike. And Ken, I mean, it, that was it. He was, that was the beginning of his yeah. thing. He what just a, took off from there. What about Arthur P.? <laughs> I love him. It's funny, all these guys say the same thing about you. <laughs> Arthur, Arthur's great. He's got a big heart. He does. We had some funny crossovers, too. Yeah. Yeah, Art had some really good... That was a good thing for Art to be doing those crossovers. Yeah. When you were at Riff, so you got hired in to do 6 till 10. Yes. And then somewhere along the lines, you became the midday jock, right? Yeah, that was a few years in. Um, I, I bounced around a lot there. Um, I was do, brought in to do 6 to 10. I did 10 to 2 at night for a while. That would probably be like around 84, 85. And I had my son in 85, and I always remember Michael Mayer was the PD at the time. And I don't know how the configuration happened, but I know that after my son Mike was born, um, I named we named him Michael Thomas, and Michael Mayer's name is Michael Thomas Mayer. Oh, funny. <laughs> and he said that he was going to give me the midday sh- shift, so he put out a funny memo back when we had paper memos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it said, there's no truth to the rumor that she's getting this gig because she named her kid after me. But, um, yeah, it was right around 85 that I started doing middays, and then things got a little weird, mm. and... Uh, in 88, I switched. <laughs> in 88, you went to CSX. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that was before Riff and CSX were sister stations. They were two right. totally different companies. Right, So that was a... Was it, were you at CSX when they signed on? No, I was there a year after. Okay, okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, and I think they signed on in 87. But, I don't know, things were getting a little strange um, at Riff. They had Lynn Woodison and they had Lynn Woodison and I doing the morning show, mm. which was very interesting. And J- Jim Edelman, who works on uh, Under the Radar Michigan now with Tom Dalton, he was our producer. <laughs> wow! So that it must have been when Calvert went to Wheels. Is that what happened? And Lynn stayed at Riff. I don't know what happened to Ken. I don't know where he went. He went somewhere. <laughs> I think it was wheels. Yeah. So you found yourself doing the morning show. With Lynn. <laughs> With Lynn, which was totally crazy. novel. It was crazy. Yeah. Right. How long did that last? I don't remember. It was for, I think it was like three months. It was for a summer. Mm. Um, but I got a call from Dick Kernan in 88, and he said, Tom Bender wants to talk to you. <laughs> Can you meet at Hogan's on Telegraph? I said, yep. So we met, and Tom said, you know, we want you over here at CSX. We'll give you middays. Okay. Yeah, right. So there you go. Uh, Tom Bender and Dick Kernan. Yeah. Wow, isn't that Did it again. Yeah, Mm -hmm. small community of people for sure. Right, right. So uh, tell me about the Riff block parties. Do you remember the Riff block parties? What were the block parties? Well, as I understand it, they would take over... Um, downtown areas and have bands come in and well you know what we did when I was there um, and that was when the 
Dick the Bruiser Band. Mm. They had an album out. That's right. We used to have concerts uh, once a week down in Hart Plaza. Okay. And Weekly. Interesting. They were huge. I mean, you know, you had all the people from all the businesses and offices coming to watch. Wow. And yeah, we had, you know, we had great bands like The Look, Better Sweet Alley, you know, Toby Red, all these great local bands. Right. And yes, they packed the house every. They were either. I think they were Tuesday afternoon. Isn't that something? Yeah. That's such an odd day to have a party like that, you know? It worked. It was great. (laughs) When you look back on Riff, um, overall, because Riff is almost 50. I don't know. It's always been a strong... The the call letters, I mean, across the country, it's always been... You know, it's been like WMMS. It's been like KMET, only it's bigger right well and it's always been consistent which is really important and i know that people would always say that they would travel outside of detroit they might drive down to florida for spring break or something and they know their home when they turn on the road right like and it sounds different consistent like rock sounds different through 101.1 fm in detroit than it does in other cities for some reason doesn't hurt that the signal is awesome (laughs) yeah right (laughs) but yeah it's been consistent um in that brand that was put on back in the 70s. When Do you remember when the music business became more of a business than just a fun industry to be in, when it really started to turn corporate? Yeah, well, kind of. Um, it seems like when they deregulated the ownership and mm. companies were buying up lots of radio stations and TV stations. It became the dollar, became the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, yeah, it, it changed. Well, yeah, well, they all of a sudden these huge companies had so much more at risk than just one radio station or right. one frequency where they had to. Yeah, that's exactly what did it. And... The corporate world, I mean, money talks. It does. Yeah, it totally does. Well, I think about, like, I remember seeing this ticket from the Grandy Ballroom, and it was the Who, Rush, and Janis Joplin for five bucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you hang out at the Grandy? I only, I only went to the Grandy once because um, I was kind of young. It's like the thing where my mother wouldn't let me go to Woodstock either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I went to the East Town every weekend. Uh, every weekend. I was in college then, mm. and we went every single weekend wow. to the East Town. Saw some amazing acts there. You know, National Derek acts? and the Dominoes, oh, really? Mad Dogs and Englishmen with Joe Cocker. And when they came in, you. We're driving to the East Town. Uh, well, yeah, uh, Eric Clapton's playing. Okay, well, here comes Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes. Oh, yeah, we're going to go see Joe Cocker. Here comes Joe Cocker with the whole entourage of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Um, there were several concerts like that. Wow. Uh, that was fun. I loved going to the East Town. <laughs> where, where exactly was East Town? Uh, somewhere on the east side. Yeah. I don't know. I never sense. drove. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Uh, um, how many people did it seat? Was it... It was like one of the, you know, it was like uh, the Grandy Riviera. It was a theater type place. Okay. It was like the State Theater, you know, something like that. Um, but it, the floor was sticky like the Grandy. And, 
you know, they had the light show and yeah, it's cool. It was pretty psychedelic. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that if you were to begin a career in radio today, that you would be able to have the same type of career? Nope. Yeah. What do you think the biggest reasons would be? I don't know. Back then, everything was more relaxed. Um, I hate to say this. I don't know if personalities are that important anymore. Mm. You know, maybe for the morning. Um, but listeners still think that I, the thing that's nice is that listeners still feel that it's important. Um, you know, like Doug Podell, he, I'll go somewhere, we, you know, he was huge at Riff. Mm -hmm. um, go somewhere with him and everyone knows him. Right. It's, it's like they, I said, that loyalty and I think that people still want to be loyal. But I, I think the corporate doesn't emphasize the personality as much anymore. Right. I really don't. Yeah. Well, that's definitely true for radio. Uh, and that's the cool thing about Riff, because mm -hmm. everybody is so distinct there. Right. You know, you got Dave and Chuck, the freak, um, Ann Carlini, an right. angel of the air. No question. <laughs> uh, Meltdown, I love him. Scott, mm -hmm. Screaming Scott, I love him. You know, I, yeah, big personalities. Exactly. And, and I, that's so refreshing. That's great. It is. And it is one of the things that's unique about Riff nationally is that most radio stations don't have that kind of heritage right. with the personalities that Riff has. Yep. Coming up. The worst interview I ever did was at Riff. Oh, really? Who was that? Van Halen. Oh, really? Dave? Yeah, all of them. All of them were in the studio with you? Yeah. And was it? My One of my best friends had gotten <laughs> married the night before. And it was a Sunday, and that's the only day they could come in. So I go in there, and I'm not feeling great anyway, and they were just rude and awful. Wow. you remember what year that was? Oh, man, no. It was probably 1980, Okay, I would say. And they brought strippers and all this stuff. This is the history of WRIF memories of the nation's favorites. The, nation's favorites. the podcast. Um, did I miss anything? What What about Riff? Can you say that I may have missed? The worst interview I ever did was at Riff. Oh, really? Who was that? Van Halen. Oh, really, Dave? Yeah, all of them. All of them were in the studio with you. Yeah. And was it my one of my best friends had gotten married the night before? And it was a Sunday, and that's the only day they could come in. And Karen, you can do the interview. And I'm like, Denise got married last night. I can't. So I go in there, and I'm not feeling great anyway. And they were just rude and awful. Wow. You remember what year that was? Oh, man, no. When did Denise get married? I don't remember. Um, Early probably, on in Van Halen's career, though, 78, 79, 80. It was probably 1980, okay. I would say. And they brought strippers and all this stuff. <laughs> and back then, ABC owned Riff. And we were not allowed to touch the equipment, the disc jockeys. Really? Yes. The only thing we could do was turn the mic on and off. Um, 
I think later we got to control the uh, volume, but when in the interview situation, I was not allowed to touch anything, so they had to bring an engineer in. And all the engineers were very cool. And I remember this one engineer we had, Jim Bob. He got stuck coming in on Sunday and recording the Van Halen interview. And he was sitting back in his studio just like dying laughing because they were giving me such a hard time. They were. I mean, it was the craziest thing. So, you have that on tape? Um, maybe Jim Bob does. I don't know. Yeah. It's probably somewhere in an archive, a yeah. riff archive. Right. right, that's funny. So on a regular, and I always loved Van Halen. I was so bummed out when that happened. And did did you were you, do you continue to like have a little grudge against Van Halen because of that? No, <laughs> that's a good memory to have, though. You know. Yeah. Um, so when you were on, doing an air shift, you weren't controlling your own studio. Somehow, I, I just remember we were only allowed to turn the mic on and off. Boy, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's the first I've ever. It heard was of that. a union. Thing. Right, sure, I get that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other really all. good or bad interviews? Um, for the most part, all of them were good. Yeah, yeah. Bands so are gracious when they come in. They're you great. Know, they're, they're excited, yeah. Yep. Well, Karen, uh, thank you for your <laughs> thank time. Thank you. I, just, thank, I hope this was helpful. Well, it is, and thank you for, uh, I mean, honestly, an unbelievable career. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. When there, you're retired, you kind of wonder, Right. what did I do? Well, well radio, Did it goes, I do anything? <laughs> well, it goes in the ether, and it's gone. But, you know, right. I think it really does stay in people's hearts, you know? And I think that's true about you in Detroit. Well, thank you. So thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And congratulations on all your success, too. Thank you. (laughs) It's been great. (laughs) Next time. Tell me about your relationship with Bob Seger. I don't know Bob that well. I remember one of one of the uh, Penhallow weddings. I think it was number. I think it was number fourteen. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, we ended up hanging out for like for a couple hours as it got late and, and things got a little looser, and, uh, and and other things. We had some mutual friends, so we'd end up at some parties together. Yeah. And he was always a great guy. Steve Costin. Who are some of your favorite interviews? You've interviewed a lot of. People. Yeah, yeah. One of my best ones was um, that I was really proud of was uh, Bowie. Mm. Um, what year? It was around ninety-ish. Live on the on the telephone, you know, back in those days, and it was fifteen minutes long, which is a long interview. afternoon drive, pretty yeah. much. It was like I don't know, ten after six till about uh, uh, six twenty-five or whatever the heck it was. We got into all kinds of stuff. We talked about uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan because uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was um, in town the the same night. The history of WRIF. The podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts.